0: Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me?
1: Sure. My name is Kate Chavula. It's a Ukrainian name, so it's a little funky. I think it's Americanized Ukrainian, so it probably doesn't make sense in either language.
0: <laughs> yeah, my wife is Czech, so I totally understand yep, that. Issue. Yep. Yeah. Now you have your own company where you create watercolor paints. I do. Yep. So, you know, so of course my first question is um, how did you become a watercolor paint producer?
1: I started out actually as an art teacher. I went to school for painting and for art education. And then I got divorced and I was living by myself with my kids and I had time on my hands suddenly to be an artist again. And being an artist can be a little scary. And so while I was perusing Instagram back in 2017, 2016, actually, I had noticed that people were making their own paints, which fascinated me. I had always been interested in making things myself as a painter. Making paint from pigments fascinated me. And especially as a landscape painter and someone that loves rocks, the pigments that I use are mostly mineral pigments. So they come from the earth and rocks. And so combining all of that into making paint just really was right up my alley. And so I tried to order handmade watercolors from some makers online, and it was not as easy as it should have been. You know, you're an artist, you don't want to have to wait for a shop update and be right there. It felt stressful. So it was a while before I even tried other makers' handmade watercolors. Because it was hard to get them, I started making my own. So I made them at my kitchen table in this little house that I had with my two kids. And I started off with just a few colors. And by January of 2017, I was opening up my little shop. And it was a couple months before I had an order. And then it just kind of slowly grew from there. But it, it felt like a safe way to make something and put it out into the world without having it be my art.
0: <laughs> oh, I understand that. Yes. The <laughs> insecurities of putting yep. something like this of your you know passion and your emotions and all that, whereas you can just put a product into the world is much easier because yep. you can tweak the product. You can make it better, make it whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Totally understand that. So help me out. I I know a little bit about like grinding pigments and and mixing colors and things like this, but what's the unique aspect of, of sort of producing a watercolor paint versus let's say an oil or an acrylic?
1: For me, as a single mom in this little house without a studio, without all the features of living or of, you know, being in college and having the paint studio there, I had stopped painting in oils especially as I got pregnant and had kids. Acrylics never really did it for me the same way oils did. And before I started getting into watercolors, I was looking into like heavy bodied acrylics and doing a lot of plein air painting. But there's just something easy and accessible about watercolors. You can do them in a small space. You don't need a lot of stuff for them. You don't need a whole studio. So they became just my medium of choice. and. It, something that I was drawn to and then you know making your own paint is is it's like baking or like making your own pickles like you can buy them but there's just something special about making them and the colors that first drew me into handmade paints were colors that you don't necessarily find easily and especially 4 or 5 years ago you it was a little bit harder to find things like pink pipestone or ochres from different parts of the country or from around the world. So that's kind of the fun part about making your own.
0: Okay, wait a minute. Are ochres different in different parts of the world?
1: They are. The colors that you get are tied to the place where they're created. So red ochre from Colorado, even though it can be chemically the same, the same kind of rock, it can look way different or have different shades Depending on where it's from, if it's in Arizona or Spain is a is a place where a lot of ochres come from and Cyprus.
0: So do you go out and actually sort of harvest your own materials?
1: I am a lazy artist, and I'm gonna push that back on the fact that I have children and I used to teach. I was teaching full time when I started my business. I taught for a couple years before doing Ruby Mountain full time. And it's a lot of work to harvest pigments and grind them yourself. But this last week or two, I actually did collect a pigment for the first time and turn it into paint. And it was a really special pigment. It was wildfire ash that had fallen from the sky because we had such a horrible fire season. And there was one day about two weeks ago where the fire was really close to where I work in downtown Loveland. I also work for a sculptor part-time, so I was working in the gallery downtown there were just piles of ash blowing in the streets so I scooped some up and that's a really easy thing to make into pigment because it's soft you don't have to grind it up you don't have to have special equipment because remember I still this is my studio that you see behind me so I still work in my home I don't have a lot of rock-crushing equipment And like I said before, that's a lot of effort. The wildfire ash was perfect because it's soft, you can easily grind it up. And in my shop, I just released two paints that were made with the wildfire ash, which felt really special and sacred.
0: Along that line, Something that sort of pops in my head is like when people are shopping for, let's say, handmade watercolor Mm -hmm. pigments. Now, is is it watercolor pigments or watercolor paints? Just so I get the terminology.
1: Yeah, watercolor paint, because pigment is the raw color material. And usually the pigment is mixed with some kind of binder. So in watercolor, watercolor binder is gum, Arabic, water, a preservative. Usually most people use clove oil or another essential oil and some honey or some glycerin, or honey or some corn syrup, depending on whether your paints are vegan or non-vegan. I use honey and then a little bit of glycerin for flow. But oil paints, the binder is oil, tempera, it's, you know, egg yolk. So the pigment is the raw color that you mix with the binder.
0: Got it. I told you I was going to ask him stupid. No questions. worries. <laughs> uh, my father's a painter. I should know better this stuff, but I just don't pay attention too much. <laughs> uh, but no, what was so what I was going to ask though? You mentioned uh, sort of having a special pigment. So, when people are shopping for a custom sort of what I would call you sort of a custom paint mm-hmm. store versus you know, your generics, um, are they looking for? consistency or are they looking for more like these unique sort of limited edition kind of pig- uh, kind of paints? Sorry, I'm going to mix up. Pig- no
1: worries. Both. No <laughs> worries. I think people are looking for both consistency and product. You know, they, they want it to be something where they can expect good quality every time. And then also, I think what kind of makes me unique is that I don't just offer a set line of colors. There's some makers where they Really are careful about adding in new colors and and i I kind of make paint the way that I make art, and I'm a lot more loose with the colors that i that I choose. I could just have the same set and keep restocking the set, but I like to try new things and new combinations. so I, I usually release new sets and new colors monthly, which is really fun to explore. So I think people are looking for the variety. I think people are looking for inspiration through their art materials, and they like supporting a small business. And I kind of think of myself as the old paint makers of the 1800s, where you really have a relationship with the artist that you work with. And... I can suggest paints to artists. Artists can come to me and say, hey, I'm working on a project. Can you come up with a color for me? And that's really fun. And then sometimes artists and I work together to make palettes or make sets, which is another way that I really like combining both my love of art and my love of art supplies. So it's it's fun.
0: Well, that's what I, one of the things I was wondering about is sort of how do you come up with your colors? So if you're not actively going out and harvesting the colors yourself you're generally ordering them them, the raw materials from somebody so how do you choose to well how do you even choose a vendor to buy these materials from But, but beyond that like how do you choose which colors do you think are the ones i mean when you started this business you had no idea what people would buy i'm sure now after Mm -hmm. you know as many years as you're in this you have a better sense but even if you were to add a new one in how would you go about sort of saying like i think people want this color
1: yeah well i sort of have my own little niche too within the handmade watercolor world it's it's a lot bigger than you might think at first there are paint makers that make paint for lettering and they'll make a lot of shimmers My shimmers are kind of fewer and far between. And I make a lot more pigments that are kind of landscape related that are tied to the land that are more like earthy colors. So that's just kind of like the niche that I settle into. And then within that, I think about colors that I would like to use. And a lot of times my palettes are seasonal. So this month, November, I'm coming out with a holiday collection. So it's going to be a winter cabin sort of inspired set. And the colors that I chose within that set, I kind of think about what colors I'm kind of thinking about when I think of that sort of theme. And then I think about new colors that I want to try to make. So for example, reds can be a tricky color. They're often fugitive, which means they don't stay light fast. And a lot of reds that you put down will fade after a little bit depending on the conditions that they're in. So I've been looking for a better red. So I found a good red and I'm going to try this red out and see how that red works for my customers.
0: Just to be clear, you said fugitive.
1: Yeah. That's what you call colors that are not light fast.
0: I've always just called them not light fast.
1: Yeah. That's, that's just another term for them. And most natural colors are not light fast and reds have been a notorious color to, get historically it came from bugs on cactus that's carmine and other yeah other reds that have been used over time like dragon's blood is a red pigment and then nothing really wait wait wait, wait.
0: dragon (laughs) dragons aren't real dragons
1: aren't real it's It's actually a resin it's a resin from a tree like a southeast asian tree so (laughs) yeah <laughs> right. but but,
0: on the other end of the spectrum, like blues are extremely light fast,
1: yeah, uh, because most, of the
0: iron and all this. yeah but so so just for a vocabulary thing, because I like learning vocabulary as well, so not light fast, reds are fugitive. So then what is a very light fast thing referred to as?
1: You know, I don't know if there is a specific term. It's like not like
0: anti fugitive. An no, or I think it's just Unfugitive. Yeah. <laughs> just like, light like. fast. Okay.
1: Yep.
0: All right. So fugitive things get their own title. That's fine. Yeah. All but
1: right. like you were saying, blues, which have traditionally come from lapis lazuli rocks, they are light fast. Most pigments made from rocks and minerals have good to excellent light fastness. So they hold their color better under conditions. So you asked me before, I don't think I touched on it, where to get pigments from. So there's there's a few different pigment suppliers
0: I don't need names or brands or anything like that, but what I'm sort of wondering is like, what are the characteristics that you look for when you're choosing who to be your your supplier, which then of course, then your own materials then get added into that. And so therefore then it sort of yes. makes your product. Yes. So, like, so it's not like, where can I buy my wholesale pigments? It's more of a, why, you know, basically, sort of as a trickle-down effect, sort of like, why should somebody buy your pigments because of the materials you used, but also because of the materials you selected?
1: Yeah, so, which is a great question. And a lot of people don't understand all of that backstory behind pigments. So pigments can be used for cars. They can be used for makeup. They can be used, you know, for all of the things that we color in our world. And a lot of the shimmers are actually not artist-grade pigments, but cosmetic pigments. A lot of the hand-lettering shimmers and stuff like that, you can tell it looks just like makeup because they're the same pigments. When I'm looking for certain pigments, unfortunately, there's not just like a one-stop shop for artist pigments. Different.
0: No, like Walmart for artist pigments? Unfortunately,
1: no. We get pretty close. We have some big shops, but there are some pigments that the others don't carry. So I tend to shop around and pigments depend on the world market. So right now, one of my favorite blues is a Maya blue and there used to be Mayan colors that a company was making. They were making these raw Mayan pigments where these pigments were sort of like mixed with a calcium carbonate sort of chalk like Mayan blue was And there were these great pigments, but then the company just sort of disappeared. And the pigments were gone. You can can find a few at some shops that have a little bit left. But there was this beautiful Mayan blue that they did not make. And I just found out from the supplier that I get it from, they had started putting a limit on what you could buy. And so I asked them what this limit was about. And they said, well, our supplier is just not making them anymore. And whatever we have left is what we have left. So I'm going to include that pigment, but it's it's sad. So did
0: you buy everything then?
1: No, because they only let me buy one at a time. So I have to do multiple orders (laughs) and kind of collect it up.
0: It's so they can charge you more shipping. Yeah, probably.
1: And they probably know that, you know, if you have to do another order, people will buy a few more things. I'm one of those people where I feel bad about sending one thing across the country. So it's like, what else can I put in my pigment order? So yeah, the pigments that I use are all artist grade pigments. Most of them have been tested for light fastness and they have pigment numbers. So many wise artists will check pig- pigment numbers because that gives you a lot of information about the paint and about the pigment that went into it and its characteristics and how light fast it is and whether it's a natural color or a man-made color. So that's all good information to know.
0: (laughs) You were throwing all kinds of terms at me that I'm like, I'm (laughs) not sure I understand everything you said. I could just nod nod my head and act like I know what you're talking about. Let me
1: break it down a little bit. So the pigments all have pigment numbers. And if you have a tube of watercolor paint, it has a pigment number on it.
0: Okay, wait. But just to be precise on this so that I understand. So this mm-hmm. is only relevant to watercolor paints. So like if I went and found an acrylic or an oil, they would not have these pigment numbers on
1: They them. would. Yeah, oils especially. I, I'm not sure if acrylics are labeled the same way. But oil painters, yeah, the pigment number is definitely in there. Watercolors, it's definitely in there. So I just because it's right here. This is like a label that I would put in my photos. And here's the pigment number. It says, this is that new red I was telling you about. PR stands for pigment red, 254. And that EXC after it was just the light fastness rating. So you can find that on your tube of paint. I can find it on the pigment bottles that I use. And that just gives people information about what pigment is in their paint.
0: Who gives this number to it?
1: I do not know, but it's standardized, so it must be some some kind of important entity. But the weird thing is that, especially with natural colors, a red can can have the same pigment number but look very different. I was telling you about how, depending on where they come from and the mix of natural minerals can affect the color shade, even though it's the same pigment number
0: you choose your pigments you get your pigments because of they have this international standardized number that we don't know where it comes from but it exists and we just agree to it that's fine <laughs> what is it that then sort of makes you like your paints more different or unique or in some way because a part of it is because i read on your website about your um you know pushing of the uh, non-toxics and your, and your desire for sort of clean uh, shipping and everything like this. So like, it seems like environmentally friendly kind of ideas are very uh, important to you. So like, how is that in your paints as well as in your business practices?
1: That's a great question. So one thing about those pigment numbers is that it allows you to look up the formula of that pigment, so that you can see the toxicity. And as an artist, you can <laughs>
0: wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. A pigment is a formula.
1: We, well, you can look up its chemical formula. yeah, you okay, can see chemical if it's formula. because okay, of...
0: I'm thinking it's like scientifically created in a lab, but Somewhere. I mean, are they really?
1: Yeah. No. Yeah, Prussian blue was the first pigment scientifically created in a lab. It's my favorite color. One of those oops things. They weren't really trying to make Prussian blue. They were trying to make something else. And oops, Prussian blue happened. But yeah, it was one of the first pigments back in the 1700s. So yeah, some are. Phthalo colors are all made in the lab.
0: That makes sense. I don't like phthalo colors.
1: No, they're awful to work with. I don't ever make them because they don't mix with the binder well. And they like like to separate and it just takes forever. Prussian blue is another awful pigment.
0: But it's a beautiful color.
1: It is. And it's the next one I'm about to do. And it's one of those ones where you're like, I'm going to clear the whole night. I know this is going to take me hours and hours because it's just a weird texture. But yeah, the pigment number lets you see what is in that pigment. So you can make those choices yourself about what pigments you want around you. Even though most of the time... Once the pigments are in the binder, as long as you're not licking your brushes like they used to do back in the old days, as long as you're not getting it you know, into your skin, most of the time you're fine. But for me using the dry pigment in my home, I try to make sure that I am not using cobalt and lead and copper based paints so that I can keep that toxic stuff out of my house and also out of the world. It's not something that I want to have being mined I don't wish that on the people mining it or you know the cities where it's being mined out of the ground so it's better just to leave that pigment alone we have so many better choices now too. days two, that a lot of times those older toxic pigments there's not even much of a reason to use them anymore because you can get the color that's almost the same or better with a better light fastness so it stays that color without turning
0: I do know what light fast. <laughs> I just didn't know f- fugitive. Yeah. fugitive. Was, fugitive. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay, so what is it that, because you talked about gum Arabic, you talked about essential oils, all this kind of stuff. So like, so when it comes to the binding agents and sort of creating the unique thing that is your product, what's the, the thing that basically sort of attracts people or should attract people to your product?
1: Yeah, so the binder that I use was a binder that I created myself after years of trial and error. You do, I do sometimes switch it depending on the pigment that I use. Some pigments are sort of thirstier and they take a little more, especially those phthalo pigments or those manufactured pigments. They like to stay wetter sometimes. So this is a binder that I've made and kind of tweaked and it's all natural ingredients. You could eat it if you want to, you probably don't want to, but gum arabic is a sap that comes from the acacia tree and it's actually a food ingredient. They use it to make like the coatings on, on little candies and stuff, it gives it that hard glossy coating. So gum arabic is actually a food ingredient. And then I use local honey, food grade glycerin, which sometimes you use as like a cosmetic ingredient on um, soaps and lotions and things like that. And that, also helps to attract water from the atmosphere into the paint so that they don't get really hard and brittle, which paints used to be like back in the 1800s. They actually would have to rub them out on a little dish because they didn't have the humectant that that kind of kept them semi-moist. That was a, a watercolor invention that kind of changed the way the artist used watercolor paint. So my ingredients in this binder are all natural. The preservative that I use is an essential oil Most of the time I use clove although for this cabin one I'm trying pine and I'm giving it a little bit a little bit of a different smell to it sometimes you can smell the essential oil just a little bit and that keeps mold and fungus from the paints because it has all natural ingredients sometimes especially in wetter climates that's something that can happen to your paints if you don't keep them if you don't let them dry out and kind of keep them dry. So you asked me earlier too about my earth-friendly practices and why that's important. As an artist and as a mom, it's important to me to keep all of that toxic stuff out of my house, out of my skin. And like I said before, we live in a time where we have so many other non-toxic options. So I offer a lot of non-plastic palettes with metal pans or I've done seashells before as pans. A lot of times I find some wood palettes or people that make have some cool collaborations coming up with people that make little wood cups. So I try to find unique ways to present my watercolors that are both good for the environment, good for the artist, and also kind of inspiring. Natural materials feel better than the plastic. And so that's, that's important to me too, the way that the whole kind of aesthetic looks and feels you want you want it to make people sit down and want to paint
0: you don't have to convince me i'm <laughs> i'm a horrible snob for beautiful design and really elegant whatever's like i i have yep. my my parents instilled me with very high snobby <laughs> sort of beliefs in, in how beautiful things should be and how they should feel beautiful in the hand and all this kind of stuff. So don't get me wrong. I, I appreciate it. I like it, but it's very expensive.
1: Yeah, it is expensive. So another thing that makes handmade watercolors different is that they have a high pigment ratio. So commercial paints will often add fillers and brighteners, and they try to make all of their paints sort of have the same intensity because different pigments can be more or less intense. But one thing that commercial makers do is a lot of times they try to get it to sort of a medium intensity. And so some paints might have brighteners, some paints might have fillers. Whereas with my handmade paints, it's just pure pigment and the binder. And so you're getting a lot of bang for your buck and little goes a long way.
0: Okay. That's a lovely sales pitch. Good job. <laughs> But what, what, what you brought up the idea of like the other sort of bigger international companies and stuff like, so how do you figure out prices? Because like you, you want to be competitive. You still need to make money mm-hmm. and, but yet you're under what I'm understanding, you're using higher quality materials and your hand doing all this. So you don't have a factory doing all this kind of stuff. So like, how can you figure out the right price for these kinds of things where it's not so expensive that people don't we can't afford it.
1: Yeah.
0: But but it's enough that you like you're able to stay in business because that's a very difficult business decision to do.
1: It is, and it's a hard thing to calculate I feel like because there's a lot of little pieces that go into, you know, the paints and and time and I don't always like use all of this pigment at once. You know, sometimes I might spread this pigment over a couple batches and then I have to think about how much that pigment costs and how many how many pans I made. So, that's one way that I try to price things is based on the pigment cost. Some pigments are higher cost than others. And then, earth pigments, like the ochres, are pretty, pretty inexpensive. And so, I found a way to kind of average it all out. But there are times where pigments like lapis lazuli or like this Maya blue that is going to be gone soon. You know, they're going to be a little more pricey just because it's there's not as much of it. To make it affordable for everybody, I try to offer different sizes. So I have a mini pan, and most of the time that one's just $5, all the way up to bottle caps, which are equivalent to a full pan. So it kind of allows the artist to start small or try, you know, colors in small amounts before they invest in something larger.
0: Okay, but I'm what I'm really wanting to know is like the business side of it so like how do you figure out cuz like I saw some of your prices don't get me wrong I don't buy paints enough I do buy paint but I don't buy paint enough to sort of know the how prices are created cuz I'm always wondering like why is this one so expensive and why is this one so cheap I mean I understand a little bit of what you said
1: it mainly has to do with the cost of the pigment so most of my average pigments Are going to cost between ten and twenty or twenty five dollars for maybe a jar about this big, hundred grams.
0: I was going to say, you know, nobody can see your fingers. Right, right. Right, Okay.
1: So a hundred gram jar, which is like, I don't know. Once again, it depends on the pigment because it's by weight. But so that what I usually buy can vary in price. But then some pigments can be just way more. They can be, you know, a hundred or two hundred dollars more. And that's when you're going to get those really pricey pans where people, you, you kind of have to be a watercolor enthusiast to really justify spending, you know, a lot of money on that. Because you can, you can paint with student grade materials, you know, and so I think as you become more into the craft of watercolor, the materials become just as much of an experience as your actual art making. The person that's buying handmade watercolors is not somebody that's usually just starting out. You know, it's somebody who has developed a love for painting already and wants to invest a little bit more in quality materials.
0: Fabulous segue. You set me up for my next thing that I was going to ask, which was okay, so once somebody, let's say, gets for the love of doing watercolor, how important or more the point like is it important the relationship of the quality of the paints to the quality of the brush and or the quality of the paper used.
1: Yeah. So I feel like the quality of the paper is probably most important out of those three because paper can be made with tree pulp or it can be made with cotton rag. And there's so many different textures of paper and thicknesses of paper that it can totally change the look of your painting depending on the kind of paper that you use. And sometimes paper can lose its sizing. Sizing is like a coating that's on the paper.
0: Wait a minute. You said lose its sizing. Where yeah. does it go?
1: Paper can go bad. How does it
0: lose its sizing?
1: It goes bad. So okay. over time it disintegrates. This The sizing is like usually a gelatin coating. And so, sometimes paper can actually go bad to where it inhibits the paint sticking to the paper or being absorbed into the fibers. And so it can be very frustrating
0: Okay, wait. So again, I'm a- I'm asking. I'm 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 actually pretty smart about art, but I <laughs> really feel like I'm asking horribly stupid questions no, here today. Not. But it's fine. But the okay, when it comes to watercolor painting on paper, you mm-hmm. which you want paper that is or is
1: not sized. You want paper that is sized. Okay. The paper that you buy commercially is is all sized. Sometimes internally, sometimes externally. And it's just like a, usually a gelatin coating. And it it helps the paper kind of evenly absorb colors. And sometimes that can go bad and disintegrate and disappear. And then your paper can be Weird.
0: (laughs) Okay, just to make sure, I will show a little bit of my art knowledge. So, like, basically, what you're talking about is the equivalent of gesso on a canvas. Basically, it's putting a barrier between it so that it doesn't technically soak into the fibers, but yet sort of still is retained on the surface.
1: Yep, sits kind of brighter on the surface. Yep. See, you know things.
0: (laughs) I do. I just hadn't equated it to watercolor paper and watercolor paper. Yeah,
1: No, that's a great analogy. And uh, so the quality of your materials does matter. And sometimes people don't realize, you know, that this paper has gone bad or this paper is kind of a low quality paper. So I used to teach art, or if you have children, you will know.
0: Wait, slow down. How can you tell if paper has gone bad or AE lost its sizing?
1: You can't really tell unless you use it, unfortunately. <laughs> it's you can't see it with a with like just looking at it.
0: I was looking for a trick, I was I hoping know, you might I know, know something. <laughs> okay. right.
1: But quality paper is important just because you're using water. So,
0: okay, what's your recommendation? Give me your list of like top three papers.
1: When I'm buying paper, I look for 100% cotton, I look for at least 140 pounds. Paper is graded by pounds so the heavier paper is better for watercolor so at least 140 pounds I prefer cold pressed but it depends on the purpose you know hot pressed is very smooth so it's a more for like technical drawings and I'm kind of a looser artist so I like the rougher surfaces so that's that's kind of my recommendation cotton paper
0: is paper in pounds it Okay, this is stupid. I live in Europe. Yeah, so... in Europe,
1: it's in grams or.
0: Okay, I was gonna say I've been reading it in GSM. Yeah,
1: three hundred GSMs.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's why I'm like. It's like I
1: don't know grams. I don't know what GSM. Yes. Ground,
0: it's grams per square meter, meter.
1: That's what it is. Yeah. Is what it is, yep. GSM?
0: Okay. Yeah, because like I love the three hundred GSM and six hundred GSMs. Yep. Like they're, but they're like cardboard. I mean, yes. so so beautiful though. But yep. anyways. Do you have any particular brands that you prefer? Because, like, I'm I'm a big Reeves BFK kind of person. You know.
1: Yep, I like Fabriano Artistico. Of
0: course, my God, a
1: very like you know budget friendly paper. What? It's so expensive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is not budget friendly. Reeves BFK is budget friendly. Fabriano is not.
1: Stonehenge Legion Stonehenge Aqua Mm. is another. I guess semi-budget friendly. (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So Fabriano actually also has a, I forget what it's called. It's sitting back there on that shelf, but it's a lower, it's like a cotton rag mix. So it's a student grade paper. So I'll keep that around for, you know, stuff that doesn't matter and then save the expensive paper for other stuff. Probably my favorite papers, though, is Amalfi paper. Have you ever tried that? I've never even um, heard of it. It's an Italian made paper, and I've only really found it on Etsy from this shop called Wabi Sabi Supplies. They're a Hawaiian shop, but it's a very interesting texture, and it kind of, I love it for watercolor. It's very toothy and kind of just grabs that paint.
0: Okay, but so just within that so like watercolor paper from what I'm hearing by the way you're describing is traditionally more of a European thing than let's say a Japanese or Asian thing. Like so the the Japanese and Asian papers might not work quite as well for the watercolor practice. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: I have not as, I don't have as much experience using Asian paper. Yeah, the the papers that I tend to buy do seem to be European. I did just get this shizen shenzhen paper that i've been using a lot lately but it's it's very rough even the smooth is pretty rough but it's environmentally friendly and 100 percent cotton and that one's made in india
0: okay just Mm -hmm. wondering yeah brushes do they matter like i'm i'm a horrible snob i love good products right right. kalinsky kind of guy like if i can afford it so
1: yep and i'm an artist that just I use my business as a way to collect art supplies. So I try out lots of different things. My favorite brushes right now are Princeton Heritage 4050. I have a lot of other brushes. I've tried rosemary brushes too. I just prefer synthetic brushes that have a bit of a snap to them over floppier kind of natural bristles. So yeah, I I like the synthetic Princeton ones.
0: All right, so let's get it sort of down to the nitty-gritty of it. Mm -hmm. When it comes to your product, which is really why we're here, is there a, like, so when it comes to brushes, does your product work better with synthetic or natural?
1: It's all personal preference. The paint, I don't think, is going to work differently on either, either of those. You know, it's up to the artist to decide what they like. A lot of people like synthetic because of that snap. The natural floppy brushes can hold more water. So that could be tricky for people. A lot of times you might not want that, all that water. So it just depends. Per, yeah, whatever you like. And you don't have to have the most expensive things. Yes, you know, I do. <laughs> to yes, paint. I, mean, yes
0: I, I absolutely. I need to feel proud of my materials. <laughs> right. I told you I'm a horrible snob about this stuff. I'm totally joking, you, just sort of. I do like good products. I mean, Mm -hmm. I come from a photography background, where of course in photography everybody's like, "Ooh, I shoot with a Canon or a Nikon," and everybody's very arrogant and blah 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 about all their tech crap. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, you know, most of my career, I've been spent around people who are very ostentatious about their materials. (laughs) It's another way. I yeah, I wouldn't say unapproachable. However, they are a bit arrogant and a bit sort of overly confident for no particular reason, but, (laughs) um, but, you know, so like, I do like my good materials. So like, you know, having the producer of a paint, giving some form of a recommendation saying this particular paper or this particular brush works, you know, more eloquently with your paint is a nice recommendation to hear. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. I just, like, I come from this place as a former art teacher, and if you remember back to how I started my shop, I want things to be accessible to people. I don't I don't want people to have to be, like, waiting with bated breath to get these few couple pans of paint, so I'm trying to make bigger batches and make things more accessible, and you don't have to have the best paintbrushes. You don't have to have the best paper. You just have to actually do it and sit down and make art, and then as you do it, you figure out what you like better and what, what you're Preferences for all those supplies. (laughs)
0: I'll just let you get away with it. It's fine. (laughs) All right. So now, more towards the business aspect of your whole thing. So you started this, so we're now in 2020, so that would be technically you began the business three years ago. Mm -hmm. Are there any dramatic things that you learned in those first three years that you were like, oh my God, I had no idea that this would be an issue?
1: There are still some times where certain pigments surprise me where I make oh, things. No. I'm <laughs> oh, thinking goodness, more like
0: Yeah, no, I'm thinking more like lawyers, taxes, um, paperwork, like the business stuff. Yeah, no,
1: I'm still pretty low-key. I do it all myself still. And so I haven't ventured too far into lawyers and taxes. I come from a family of lawyers, which helps. That's great. Yep. Like I said, my other job, I work for a sculptor and it's another family business With the, and I work, <laughs> work with the accountant. So anytime I have questions, I kind of just ask the people that I know. And as I go along, I do try to learn more things. I take some online classes about like business taxes and things like that. But it hasn't been as hard as I thought it would be yet, honestly.
0: Okay. I'm horribly jealous, but it's, all right. It's really
1: fine. scary to jump off and do it. But I kind of got pushed out of my other job, and and was faced with the choice of now what do what do I do now? And sometimes it, that makes the the choice easier because I don't know if I would have left the safety of teaching to run an online business making watercolors, you know, if I wasn't essentially forced out.
0: <laughs> I'm just gonna totally let that slide too. Oh, so that's
1: a good story. <laughs>
0: You're welcome to tell the story feel free. So what so what happened? How do, why did you leave the teaching profession?
1: <laughs> I won't I won't make it a big story, but I was teaching art and I had a principal who was a math teacher and I taught a kind of art called choice-based art education or teaching for artistic behavior. So it wasn't just me having the kids following directions. It was setting up stations and having the kids work as artists with materials, but they make kid art and that can really freak some people out. So my principal, who is the math teacher, didn't really see the value in what I was doing. I was also split between two schools at the time because it's hard to have a full-time art teaching position at one school. And so I was splitting my time and my contract got non-renewed and it was a chance to either like find another teaching job after, you know, I had already been teaching for 10 years and I had a master's degree. So it was like find another teaching job or I could jump into this paint making business full time. And I don't think I would have jumped into it full time if I wasn't sort of forced to. So things that sometimes can be not so great when they happen, sometimes turn out to be really good.
0: Oh, I have very similar experiences. I've been a professor for, for I've been teaching for I don't know, twenty years and I've had deans that are that I had one dean that tried literally tried to push me out by accusing me of doing illegal activity on campus. Oh, wow. Like, he wow. The, the the stupidest one he accused me of is one day he gave me a key to this building and then a week later he accused me of breaking into the building <laughs> that he gave me a key to.
1: Oh wow
0: and i'm like how can i break into a building if you gave me a key to it (laughs) yeah bosses are not always great sometimes it's nice to work for yourself oh yeah
1: so nice to work for yourself
0: sometimes not always i mean it has its pros and cons like any other job
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you've got to be self-motivated you do speaking of that so you are primarily online you have no brick and mortar and you have no retail locations that people can buy your paint so they pretty much have to buy through you through yeah
1: i have a couple things at a couple little mountain shops but the best selection is through me
0: right so (laughs) how has that worked uh you know what have you learned through that process so because you i've noticed okay so you have a personal website mm-hmm. you also have an Etsy shop mm-hmm. and then you have a, a very successful social media profile with uh, Instagram mm-hmm. I didn't look past that do you use anything else
1: no that's about it Mo- and most of my attention is focused on Instagram and Etsy that seems to be my my website is connected through Etsy so it's all one thing and that was important because otherwise it was a lot and i had to figure out a way to simplify so that's kind of my main my main two channels how
0: do they work or like how do you utilize them effectively because, and I ask this because there are many people, myself included, that are really bad with using the internet as far as sort of publicity and getting people interested and keeping people engaged and being engaging, you know, like a lot of us just like as artists, we just put up our work and just hope people like it. And we think that that's <laughs> what social media is. And that's not it. you like, you have to put effort yes. into all this stuff. Like, you can't just build a website and expect people to find it. You have to do something to draw people to it so like so what are some of the things that you figured out how to attract people engage people and keep them
1: coming back to your products i uh, you have to build relationships just like you do when you're a teacher and this is something that didn't come to me right away and it's something that i kind of noticed as i built my business after i stopped teaching i started working part-time for a very successful bronze sculptor and so I watched the way that he talks to people and the way that he builds relationships with people and I noticed that when I when I do that online not only do I feel good I like talking to other people I like seeing what people are making my first customer that I didn't know you know the first customer who bought my my paints who was a stranger I still follow her online and she and I have sort of an online relationship we've done collaborations together we've kind of like cheer each other on as we're creating art and so i feel like that relationship building is really important to what makes people not only be willing to try and invest their hard-earned money in paints that are not cheap but keep coming back for more Uh, as an art teacher i noticed that most people are artistic they just need a little encouragement. And so when I teach workshops or I teach little kids, that's a big part of my role is just telling telling people to keep going, you know, just keep going. Because as an artist, you don't just create one masterpiece and you're done. You know, you, to be a really good artist, you have to just keep going and not worry about what things are looking like. So that's that's kind of my my role as a paint maker in a way too online is to engage with people and build these relationships and it kind of ties back to my ability to also then work with them as their paint maker if they're looking for a certain color or they're looking for advice I'm somebody that they can come to and say hey can you create this color or what color do you think would be good for this
0: okay wait within that little thing right there you said so basically you'll make custom paint colors for people stupidly business question same price as all your other paints or is is this like is there a different price point for custom paints?
1: most of the time it's the same price depends on the pigments that they're asking for or they're choosing
0: mayan blue Mm -hmm. and
1: (laughs) right and the most expensive ones
0: (laughs) yes i want to mix the most expensive ones together to create the most expensive (laughs) pigment ever (laughs)
1: Yep, that would be an interesting one.
0: I'm sure somebody in Dubai is already
1: doing it. It's fine.
0: <laughs> All right. From a business standpoint, how has uh, the the pandemic affected you? Or has there been any effect? I mean, because I could imagine in some ways this might actually be really good for you because a lot of people have more free time and are trying out being painters because they're stuck at home and they need to, you know, something new to do. Um, so I'm just wondering, sort of like, has there been any effect from the pandemic, positive or negative?
1: I haven't noticed any negative effect. I was kind of worried at first too, because I, you know, I feel like they're kind of expensive, and are people going to want to spend their money, you know, when when we're in this kind of situation in the in the world? But yeah, like you were saying, it seems like a lot of people are at home. And watercolors and art provide a lot of relaxation and help a lot of people unstress. So sales have been good all throughout this pandemic. My ability to make enough paint, you know, having my kids at home with me has been harder a little bit.
0: Just make them make paint. Child child no, labor laws no, are nothing. Don't no, worry about keep them. Keep going. That's right. That's right. Get it. Get a little whip. Whoopsh, whoopsh.
1: No. my daughter loves to help me do inventory, though, which is which is really nice and cute and helpful. So
0: fascinating. I'm assuming she can count.
1: Yes. 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 She's okay. nine, so great. She's pretty good at counting.
0: Okay, I would question your inventory if your child could not count yet was helping you with inventory. Sometimes
1: I count my inventory and then I question my numbers, like. What happened here?
0: Okay, (laughs) I am going to let that be your concern. Um, One other thing I've noticed too is like a lot of shipping problems because of the pandemic and everything Mm -hmm. like this. Like, I mean, because I live in Europe, and so like I am having a a horrible time getting things shipped to me uh, in Europe, and vice versa. Even you know things going out. So, like, how have you seen any issues with the sort of shipping? And have anybody had any problems with that?
1: I've had a few international packages, especially during the start of the pandemic, that just went missing, never to be found again. But I have learned to insure all of my packages. And Etsy makes it really easy to do insurance claims and get the money back, so that's helpful. But recently, so I'll do really big package orders, you know, I'll have like 20 packages that go out at a time and I go to my local post office and they've got one of those drop boxes on the wall where you can put all the the packages in and it's like safe and secure. Well, I put a couple packages in and most of them got scanned in and then they, you know, go through the system. But I had three that never got scanned in and they just disappeared. And then because they were never scanned in, it looks like I never dropped them off. So I can't get the insurance, but that's the only time I've ever had that happen.
0: That doesn't sound like anything specifically pandemic related. No, so that, no. That just sounds like a mistake. We'll just let that one go also.
1: Yeah. But our poor post offices are very busy and are going to get busier during this holiday season. So definitely oh ship God. everything early, give it lots of time and insure yeah. your packages if you can.
0: Absolutely. Now so your company is I assume growing you're doing better year on year so we can look forward to like you expanding and becoming bigger in the future
1: yeah hopefully I think just just like any business this pandemic kind of threw a surprise wrench in things in terms of just how i was I was out and doing workshops and stuff this time last year and kind of expanding in in that way and even, doing more demonstrations, but you know, with the pandemic, all of that kind of goes away. And so, yeah, they definitely after this pandemic is over, I think there'll be a lot more growth too from my company just cause I can start getting people in here and doing more things.
0: Certainly. Okay, I have two last questions. They're kind of ridiculous, but please bear with me. Sure. Um, what do you call yourself?
1: uh like my job title
0: paint maker
1: yeah I call myself a paint maker most of the time when people ask me what I do I just tell them that I'm an artist (laughs) because it's a little little less explanation but yeah paint maker
0: no this was more specifically for what I should title the podcast so paint 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 maker would be the appropriate term yeah okay I didn't I didn't know if there's like a Paintalier, kind of like a Latin <laughs> there term. Probably for it probably like,
1: is. Okay, that's fine.
0: <laughs> just just wondering. Okay. Last question that I have, and I've asked this of some other people, guests as well. And I sort of wanted to sort of hear because you, you mentioned it a little bit, which was about like the toxicities and these kinds of things. So like how has being a parent affected your business practices?
1: So definitely in the way that I think about toxicity and having certain pigments in my house and I want, even though, you know, they're expensive and you might not want your kid to sit down next to you and paint, I still want your kid to be able to sit down next to you and paint with the same paints my kids do. So that's why the binder ingredients and the pigments that I choose are going to be, you know, non-toxic. Then also, you know, having kids I think has made it so that I see the value in these tiny little sets, being able to have your art supplies contained in a little pouch so that when you're a parent, you can kind of like, you know, go to the park and then whip out your art supplies while they're painting, while they're playing and you can paint. That's, that's I think, most parents' artistic life. You know, we don't get a lot of studio time. I'm divorced, so right now my kids are at their dad's. And I have this whole day, this whole Sunday, to be in my studio, which is amazing. But a lot of people don't
0: have that. <laughs> and I've interrupted you. No, no, this. no, That's it's
1: funny. all right.
0: <laughs> other the things we do for our business and our art practices. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I ask is because a lot, a lot I hear a lot of stories about like um, how like pre there's like sort of like in some people's business practices and or art practices like there's pre kids and then there's sort of post kids and how your outlook is different whether it's your work ethic or your morals or your whatever it is like they change when you have children and and how that ends up sort of coming back to affect your either your art practice and or your business practices
1: For me, the big change after I had kids was not being able to devote as much time to my work, not being able to paint large oils like I did when I was in college. And there's actually a time in my sketchbooks because I've, you know, have filled many sketchbooks over the years. And right before I had my daughter, my first daughter, I was really into plein air painting. And so my sketchbooks were really full. And then there's like a couple years where nothing happens. And and then the next page is like a really half-hearted attempt at drawing from me and like some child scribbles in there. So I think you kind of have to you have to make it even more of a point to to be an artist when you have children because it's so easy to let that fall to the side and it can be really hard to get that back. So I'm, I'm, I hope to make my supplies accessible and easy for everyone, not just people that have kids, but living in a small apartment or, you know, maybe your only time to work is on the train or, you know, this is something small that you can take with you. And it's a lot easier to work in a little sketchbook than it is to devote yourself to something big.
0: Yeah. See, you should be encouraging people to do big works because the bigger <laughs> the work they're making, the more of the, the paint they have to buy from you. Don't uh, don't big encourage works
1: are them. But
0: don't encourage them to do small stuff, and they're not buying much from you. They don't need a lot of paint. No, no, everybody. You should work on monumental scales, <laughs> and you should be buying lots of paint to produce these things. You should have custom-made paper, and like go big.
1: Yep. Go big or go home. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, how are we supposed to keep these? Little, I mean, to me, because to me, you're like a, a boutique kind of a store. Like, yeah. you're not, you know, you, and so, like, I love boutique stores. I don't care what they are fashion stores, you know, home decor stores, whatever. I, I love boutique anything. So, anything we can do to try and keep boutique things alive, especially right now in the state of the world, is I'm all for it. So, everybody work big in watercolor. don't do this little <laughs> piddly stuff she's talking about. it's much better to buy more and go bigger <laughs> well, they'll end up selling it for more money. I mean they'll make the money back it's not it's not you know come on we're not saying like waste money. we're just saying you know go bigger
1: but then you have to find people that have big spaces in their houses for these big things
0: and there are people like that all over the world
1: they're actually they're really truly are.
0: <laughs> I lived in Abu Dhabi for six years. Trust me. People have lots of space in their homes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Some people do.
0: <laughs> They're not my friends, but they are, they do exist in the world. There's lots of places that don't get me wrong. I'm not saying monumental, but like there, there's no need to, I don't feel like there's any need to like encourage, like not encourage, but like push, push the like make small work. Cause it's all you can fit the time in for. Kind of thing. Like, come on people can make reasonable sized works, you know, a good 16 by 20 piece is perfectly acceptable for most people's homes.
1: Yep. yeah, True.
0: That would be a, a, a two for the Europeans, I believe,
1: because
0: <laughs> I have to keep doing this translations. Yep, so, yep. okay. Last thing then, any advice for any people? So whether it's people that are thinking about purchasing boutique watercolors or people who are just even thinking about trying watercolor at all or people that want to become paint makers?
1: I think for the the people thinking about trying to paint or the people thinking about becoming a paint maker and trying to make their own paints, my advice is just to, to go for it. Just try it. I think lots of times we get hung up in in all of our fears about trying new things or about painting or about being an artist. And, well, you know, you just have to, you just have to go for it and worry later about whether it's good or bad or <laughs> save the judgment for later. Just do it.
0: Great way to end. So thank you
1: very much. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs>